Now, if you'd open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 14 tonight, and we're going to be looking at the first five verses of the text, and the first verse begins, Then I looked. I want to just pause here a minute in reading that. The word that is used here for conjunction is chi, which could be and I look. But here's the thing I want to point out about this. Normally, when that particular conjunction is used, it's post-positive. And what I mean by that technical talk is that it usually sets second after the word that is before it that it is basically linking to. So when it's used first, when I or when chi or then or and is used first rather than second word in the sentence, it's really stressing, as I understand the grammar, sequence. In other words, it's an emphatic stress of sequence. I think that's important to this passage in understanding. Otherwise, people do bizarre stuff with the book of Revelation. So this is sequential in what we're getting here. So after you have this Antichrist surface, and after you have then this false prophet that we talked about last time who's demanding that everybody in the world worship the Antichrist and demanding that everybody takes the mark of the beast, then, which begins verse 1 of chapter 14, then in the sequence of things, then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, And with him, 144,000, having his name, and the name of his father written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne, and before the four living creatures, and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. These are the ones, and by the way, I want to point this out concerning the pronoun these that's repeated three times in this verse. It's masculine plural referring to the 144,000. See, there's just no dodging the grammar of this. This is where people butcher the book of Revelation. They don't go through it. They don't spot this stuff, but this is critical to a true interpretation of the book. These are the ones who've not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been purchased from among men as firstfruits to God and to the Lamb, and no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the scriptures, and we thank you that you've put them in written form And we're also grateful, Lord, that you chose the language that you wrote it in so that we could be very precise in our understanding of the scriptures, including prophetic passages. And it's our desire to be just as precise as we possibly can. Now, we know, Lord, we all have limitations, but we would pray that you would use our minds tonight to carefully and accurately understand this text in the way you've inspired it. And we will thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the real threats of our day for those who claim that they are right with God is that they immerse themselves in what we could almost say was a paganistic type of lifestyle. This is a lifestyle that basically says we do what we want. We aren't going to submit to anyone or anything. We do what we want. We pursue whatever we want. We pursue money, career, success, pleasure, and then we go to church. We throw that in after we're pursuing whatever we want to pursue. But then there are others who don't live life that way. They're solid in their faith and in their commitments. They don't follow the crowd. They don't pursue the objectives of most of the people. They stand up and stand out and shine bright for the glory of God. 
They have a wonderful, close relationship with Jesus Christ. As the world falls apart, they experience victory and joy. The rest of the world is crumbling, but then you have this small nucleus of people that are focused on their right relationship with God. They're flourishing. That's the story of what happens here in Revelation. As we come to Revelation 14, we come chronologically to about the middle point of the Great Tribulation. And as we have seen in this tribulation at this point, things are taking a dramatic turn toward the nation Israel. Satan is confined to this earth, and the Antichrist and the false prophet are in Jerusalem, and they are in full operation in their attack against Israel. And we have no idea. We have no idea how evil things are going to be. I mean, when you get over to Revelation chapter 16 and verse 15, a person's praise simply if they wear their clothes. That's how evil it's going to get. Satan is confined to this earth, and he is going to attack this world. And it's at that point when you have Satan and the Antichrist and the false prophet beginning their vendetta that this text shows up. Isaiah said there will come a time when Israel needs to get out of Jerusalem However, for those who are faithful in Israel, we read, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. What we see when we come to these verses is Jesus Christ will have a close relationship to the 144,000 Jews who are his property and who are faithful to him. Now, here's what's happened so far in this book of Revelation. Three and a half years before you get to this point, the rapture took place. And these... 144,000 were here on earth when that happened. They weren't believers then. They hadn't been brought in by God's elective grace into a relationship with him, and they saw the rapture. Then there were the sealed judgments, and in those sealed judgments, mountains and islands are being moved. I mean, as we went through that text, I mean, they're actually being relocated. As I understand the Greek language, God literally picks up a mountain range and removes it. Then he picks up an island and moves it over here. I mean, that's what people are going to look in the sky and see. We know by this time in the tribulation period, one half of the world's population is dead. So if you have 8 billion people in the world, which is about what we have right now, and you take half of the world's population, you've got 4 billion people dead. Then you have the Antichrist and the false beast and Satan actually in Jerusalem. Remember, Satan's confined to the earth now. He can't be going along in the air because he was kicked out of heaven and any access that he had to the heavenlies. So as a result of that, he's confined to the earth. So you have Satan and the Antichrist and the false beast in Jerusalem. You have all the demons on earth. And now you have these three, the Antichrist, Satan, and the demonic world and the false prophet. And they're all demanding everybody take this mark of the beast. <laughs> That's what you're living with at this point. And we're just getting going in this. And as we look at verse 1, what we cannot help but see is that this geographically happens on Mount Zion. Because we read, Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion. Now that's important, because that is the literal spot that Israel expects to become the very spot where the Lord Jesus Christ is going to return to set up his kingdom. Over and over in the Bible, it speaks about Zion as being the place to which Christ will actually return and start his reign. It's predicted that Jesus Christ will actually stand and reign on Mount Zion. In fact, I do want you to go back to a couple of Old Testament passages tonight. I'd like you to go back to Isaiah, if you would please, chapter 24. 
Isaiah chapter 24, I want to read this statement about Mount Zion. Isaiah 24, Isaiah 24, verse 23, Then the moon will be abashed and the sun is shamed, for the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and Jerusalem, and his glory will be before his elders. So we know the Lord is going to come back to Mount Zion. Now flip over to Joel, if you would, chapter 2. Just go right a few pages to Joel chapter 2, and you get another statement here about Mount Zion. I'm going to take you to a couple of texts in Joel. In Joel chapter 2 and verse 32 we read, And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered, for on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. Then if you go down to chapter 3 and verse 16, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. So what we learn here from these passages of Scripture is this place of Mount Zion is a critical spot here for what's going to happen in the future. Now we're just three and a half years in, so we still have another three and a half years to go. So in the middle of the great tribulation, Jesus Christ is going to have this private meeting, as it were, with 144,000 at the very location and very spot he will return three and a half years later. And this will be a time when they will need him to do that because things are going to be real bad at this point. I mean, it is all turning. It's turning against Israel. It's turning against Jerusalem. I mean, for the first three and a half years, things were relatively tame, but not anymore. Things are vicious. And so the Lord Jesus Christ makes this special appearance at Mount Zion with these 144,000. Now, there are nine observations we want to make about it tonight. First of all, the Lamb is literally standing on Mount Zion with the 144,000. Then I looked. Again, I want to stress this. It is kai idon in Greek. John saying, then I saw this. We're not talking about some mystical dream of la-la land or futuristic science fiction. John says, I saw this. I saw this happen. At this point, when the Antichrist and the false prophet were singled out, they're demanding the world receive the mark of the beast. Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him... 144,000 having his name and the name of his father written on their foreheads. Now the lamb is Jesus Christ. And at this point in the tribulation, he's going to make a literal, personal appearance at this spot in Jerusalem when Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet are all there. This is not his second coming. His second coming comes in Revelation chapter 19, we're about three and a half years, perhaps a little less than three and a half years from that event. But this is another event. And this will be a very unique moment, and there will be reasons for this moment. There have been five suggested reasons why this moment occurs. The first one is some suggest that Christ will return here at this point to reinforce to the 144,000 the fact that they've been sealed and they will be kept from the attacks of Satan during the next three and a half years, which is called in Scripture the time of Jacob's trouble. So if you're just Jewish in the last three and a half years, you're going to be targeted. The final three and a half years of the tribulation will be the time of Jacob's trouble, and it would certainly be a major encouragement to the 144,000 Jews 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. We already saw that in chapter 7. It would be tremendous encouragement if Jesus Christ shows up and says, by the way, guys, you're right on track here. This program's right on track, and you're at the right spot, and I am going to come back here to this spot and take over the world. Some have suggested that this 
ceiling in chapter 7 protected them from the wrath of the Lamb, but not necessarily the wrath of Satan. And then they go so far as to say what is going to happen at this point is these 144,000 are going to be martyred. So Jesus appears to them here and lets them know that this martyrdom is going to take place. I don't see that anywhere. In fact, when we went through the ceiling in Revelation 7, it doesn't appear to be just an isolated protection from the wrath of God. Plus, when the demons are released, before the three and a half year period, they killed people, but they couldn't touch the 144,000. We saw that in Revelation chapter 9. There's no evidence at all that these 144,000 will be martyred. I want to just give us a real principle of Bible interpretation. Just stick with what a text says. And if it's possible, take it literally. That's where people butcher the book of Revelation and come up with all kinds of crazy ideas. They see all kinds of crazy things in the book of Revelation. Stick with the text. There's no evidence anywhere in the text that the sealing of the 144,000 was designed to take them through the first three and a half years, then they would be killed. There's just no evidence of that. Some have suggested that this is the moment when Jesus Christ takes the 144,000 home to be with him in their own private rapture. So he comes back on Mount Zion, meets them on Mount Zion, and then takes them home to be with him. Although certainly it could be possible, it's not stated that that happens. And since it's not stated, we're not just going to add and make stuff up. And if that were to happen, if they were going to have their own private rapture, why would the Lord come back and stand on Mount Zion with them? Why didn't he just call them up in the air in the clouds like he did at the rapture of the church? A fourth suggestion is this kind of personal appearance of Jesus Christ is to inform the 144,000 that his kingdom and takeover of the world is on the way. And I think this is really a real possibility here because these guys are going to be under attack. The nation Israel is going to be under attack as never before. And this would reinforce the idea to these 144,000. You keep going. You stay faithful. Because the kingdom is coming, even though from this point on, it will look like all Jews are going to be exterminated. It isn't going to happen. I'm with you. I'm watching over you. I'm protecting you. You just stay the course. Now, the fifth suggestion is that Christ returns to meet the 144,000 to show Satan and his team who are there that he's the victor, not Satan and his demons. And I think that is something that does come into play. I guarantee you this. Satan and his forces, Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet are going to realize Jesus Christ is in town here. They're going to be completely aware of the fact, you know, Jesus Christ is in town right now standing up on top of Mount Zion with those 144,000. And even though at this point they're really in their rah-rah frame of mind, The fact of the matter is, they've been given great power during this time. They aren't going to win. And by virtue of the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ makes an appearance here with these 144,000, those demons and that Antichrist and Satan and that false prophet certainly is going to understand we're going to lose this thing because even though we're able to go on the warpath against Israel, we can't seem to touch them. And I think that's the reason for it. 
Which brings us to the second observation. This is the same 144,000 Jewish men we saw earlier in Revelation. Now let's just back up to Revelation chapter 7 because here are the same 144,000. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed, Reuben, 12,000, Gad, 12,000, Asher, 12,000, Naphtali, 12,000, Manasseh, 12,000, Simeon, 12,000, Levi, 12,000, Ishakar, 12,000, Zebulun, 12,000, Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. I mean, it doesn't get any more specific than that. This is the same group he's meeting with now who've been functioning around the world, presenting the kingdom gospel to the world. You'll remember in Matthew 24, Jesus said the gospel of the kingdom is going to be preached to the world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 24, 14. The gospel of the kingdom will be preached to all the nations, and then the end will come. Well, these 144,000 have been operating for three and a half years at this point, and they've been taking that kingdom gospel to the world. Now, the kingdom gospel is not the grace gospel. It's a different message. The message that we present to people, which we did this morning, is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. I mean, that's the message we take. That's the grace gospel that Paul reveals in the gospel of Romans. The message that these guys are going to be presenting is Jesus Christ is coming back to set up his kingdom, and he's going to take over the world. And we are in a perilous time here in the great tribulation. It's the time of judgment and wrath. And, of course, it will come down to people either believing that or not believing that. But these are the 144,000 who have been singled out by God to communicate that kingdom gospel. And their sealing had the name of Jesus Christ and the name of God the Father on their forehead. The sealing is not visible to other humans as the mark of the beast is going to be, but it will be visible to God. And it's this sealing that's going to guarantee they're protected. It's this sealing that guarantees they'll be able to minister and do the job completely that God wants, even at a time when things are turning against Israel. Which brings us to the third observation. These 144,000 Jews learn and sing a new exclusive song. Verse 2, and I heard a voice. I don't know who the voice is. I mean, the text doesn't bring that out. It's like the sound of many waters, like the sound of a loud thunder. So it's obviously a very large, booming type of voice. Could be the saints. Could be we're singing along with this. Or it could be angels. I mean, both of those have shown up in this book of Revelation from heaven after the rapture of the church as being those who would sing songs. Well, the language of the verse describes that as on earth these things are taking place and Satan and the Antichrist and the false prophet are just getting rolling in their diabolical finale, there is this tremendous worship service that is taking place in heaven that's focused on the judgment of God and focused on the victory that God's going to experience, and these 144,000 are fully aware that the things that are happening on earth are part of the judgment of God and will lead to the glorious return of Jesus Christ. Now, the 144,000 are not in heaven at the worship service, but they're aware of it. They're on Mount Zion. They're standing on Mount Zion with the Lamb, which is Jesus Christ, but they obviously hear this song, and they're the only people on earth who are able to learn this song, and they're the only people on earth who are able to sing this song. The text does not say that the 144,000 are in heaven, 
but they're aware of this song, and they're able to sing this heavenly song on earth, and at this point in time, no one on earth except them is able to know this song. There's a great principle to glean from this. They are so close to Jesus Christ that he lets them learn heavenly things at a level nobody else on this earth can learn them. And I think there's an important lesson for us to get from that. And that is people who walk close with the Lord, that is people who walk obediently to the scriptures, and people who are serious about their relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, that are making adjustments in light of the Holy Spirit, will be able to see things and learn things others on this earth will never see or learn. I mean, there are people who know the Lord and they're never going to get beyond goo-goo-gaga, infant-level baby food because they cannot possibly grow to a mature level because God isn't going to let them grow to a mature level because they're not dealing with stuff in their own life. Now, the idea of singing a new song is often used in the context of God turning things around for his people. I mean, what they've been experiencing in the world is a time of despair, but often when they start singing a new song, it's a song that sings from despair to blessing. And we know in heaven there are harpists who play instruments, and that point is revealed here. It's revealed in multiple places in Revelation. And by the way, the harpists here are heavenly trained musicians. This is not a concept that all people that go to heaven float around in the clouds strumming a harp. In fact, I would go so far as to say these will be very, very skilled musicians. The highest level of skill that a musician could have. They're playing this harp in the ultimate place where they could play it. So these are going to be people who are very skilled in playing these harps. Now we learn from the Apostle Paul that the mention of a harp is in a context of different spiritual gifts. So if one is actually in this harp orchestra, that one is very, very skilled. Not everybody has that skill. And John heard them playing, and he heard them singing, and it was a new song that only these 144,000 could learn. And it was a new song. And as we've pointed out multiple times, there are a couple of adjectives that may be translated new. New in the sense of brand new. Or new in the sense of something new to you. We often use this as an illustration. You go out and you buy a new car. You can use one of two adjectives. If you say, I bought a new car, you could mean, I went out and I bought a car. It's new to me, but it isn't necessarily brand new, just off the lot. Or you could use this adjective, and you could say, I went out and bought a brand new car. It is brand new. It's never been owned by anyone else. It's mine. The adjective used here is kainain, which is brand new. So this song has never been sung before. It's never been played before. It's going to be sung and played right here at this point in the tribulation. It is going to be a song that will bring great encouragement to the 144,000. They will hear it. They'll sing along with it. And they are the only ones on this earth that will be able to sing this song and understand the lyrics of it. Which brings us to the fourth observation. These 144,000 will have been redeemed from the earth. Verse 3 says, The 144,000 who had been purchased or redeemed from the earth. That is so interesting to me. Because these 144,000 missed the rapture. They missed the rapture three and a half years before this song is sung. And the reason they missed the rapture is because they had rejected Jesus Christ. 
Anyone who receives Jesus Christ is in the family of God. They're guaranteed that they're going to go home when God takes his family home. And they'll be caught up in the air to meet the Lord in the air. But by this point in the tribulation, these 144,000 are thrilled by the thought of their redemption. They are meeting with Jesus Christ on top of this mountain. Meeting with Jesus Christ. And they realize, man, even though we rejected him, Before that rapture occurred, we rejected him. Now we have a relationship with him that is based on what he did for us. He redeemed us. He redeemed us with his precious blood. Now, as we've pointed out in our doctrine studies, there are three Greek words translated redeem. And they're critical words. Agarazzo means You go to the marketplace and you buy a horse and then you leave the horse in the marketplace hoping to resell it. Ek agarazzo means you go to the marketplace, you buy a horse, you load the horse up in your trailer, take it home, and it's your horse. Lutrao means you go to the marketplace, you buy a horse, you take the horse out, and you just let it go and set it free. The interesting word that is used here is agarazzo, which would indicate God is going to leave these 144,000 here. These 144,000 who have been purchased by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, he owns them, they're his. He's reconfirming that with them as he meets with them here on Mount Zion. And by using agarazzo as the word that describes them here, he's basically saying, I have saved you, but I'm leaving you here. You are my property. You're my sealed property, but you have a job to do, and I'm going to keep you here to do that job. Which brings us to the fifth observation. These 144,000 have kept themselves pure. Verse 4 says, These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they've kept themselves chaste. I just want to talk to us a minute about this because this is something that God's people need to understand. We as God's people need to be pure people. Don't be pursuing dirty stuff because this world's getting darker and dirtier. We need to be pursuing purity. Now you think about this. At this point in the tribulation, it's as filthy and dirty a world as you can have. Because all the restraining ministry of the Spirit of God is gone. So all you have left here is Satan and demons and filth. Yet these 144,000 we learned, they stayed pure through this all. God's people need to be pure. And as we look around our world, it's becoming more and more perverted. It's becoming more and more depraved. But after the rapture, immorality is going to break loose at a whole new level. There will be no restraints, no restraints on sexual immorality. There'll be no repentance of it either. And during that time, those 144,000 are going to be ministering in a world that is totally corrupt, totally evil, totally perverted, totally immoral, and these guys will have kept themselves pure. And there's no question that Satan is a great promoter of sexual immorality, and it's A terrible sin in the estimation of God. God's people don't want to get involved in stuff that's immoral. And what these 144,000 did is in the middle of a world that is satanically empowered completely, these people would not give in to the seduction of Satan. They would not give in to the seduction of the Antichrist or of the false prophet. 
Now, sexual immorality is going to be very rampant in the tribulation to the point that Jesus commends people if they keep their clothes on. That's how bad it's going to get. And you'll see it later in this book. I'm not, I'm not using hyperbole here. I mean, this is reality. This is how evil and corrupt this world's going to get. When Satan and his forces are actually totally confined to this earth, sexual immorality is going to reach a new level this world has never seen. We know from the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ that it's going to go back to the days of Noah and back like the days of Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, if you go back to the days of Noah, that was an unusual, immoral time when demonic stuff was infiltrating and producing this demonic offspring of people. Well, demons are going to be confined to this earth, and there's going to be a real demonism involved in immorality. And of course, the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, the unusual sin that was involved there was the sin of homosexuality. Now, in a normal dispensation, the key to not being immoral is you get married. But the tribulation is not going to be a normal dispensation. During the tribulation, things are going to be so stressful that marriage is not going to be a good option. You're not going to say in the middle of the tribulation when you're being tracked down to survive, well, I think let's have a wedding ceremony. I mean, people who think right certainly are not going to do that. What this passage teaches us is that it's possible. It is possible to walk in such close fellowship with Jesus Christ that even when you live in a corrupt, immoral world, you stay pure. These 144,000 are illustrative of men who do that very thing. And they're men, by the way. The emphasis of the these, they're masculine plural pronoun. These, masculine plural. So we're talking about these 144,000 men. And the key to not getting involved in immoral things is your mind. What you're doing with your mind. Immorality starts in the mind long before it hits the body. So be careful what you're feeding into your mind. Transform your mind daily by the renewing of it on the scriptures. Think good things, pure things, truthful things. Certainly we know God can and will forgive immorality. He has done it multiple times. He did it in the church of Corinth. But once you've been forgiven, once you've been redeemed, once you are growing in the Lord, you need to pursue that which is pure. And I would just say to everyone in this church, you pursue purity because this world's getting bad. It's getting bad. And if we pursue purity, we'll see God use us in remarkable ways. The sixth observation is these 144,000 follow the lamb. Now, I like that statement there. We read in the middle of verse 4, they kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. Now, here's what you have now. And I think this gets real dispensational. What you have now is a real re-implementation of real discipleship. See, we don't right now follow Jesus Christ around. What we do is we understand the scriptures and obey the scriptures. And that's how we kind of follow the Lord. We go through the New Testament epistles, grace age epistles. We try to make adjustments and applications in light of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But what we're getting back to here at this point in the tribulation is real discipleship. And these 144,000 Jewish evangelists who are now on Mount Zion, centered in Jerusalem, we're going back to days where you need real discipleship and you need guys to follow the Lord. And it's very possible during the final three and a half years of the tribulation, they will be leading the Jewish people to those places of escape. 
Remember, Jesus said to the people, when you see that abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, when you see the Antichrist go into that temple and demand that he be worshipped as God, which is where this happens at this point in the tribulation, you get out of there and flee to the mountains. Well, many of the people are going to go, where do we go? I mean, we'll flee, but where do we go? And these 144,000 will be critical to their survival. According to Zechariah, one-third of the Jews will survive. They're going to need a place to hide. There are nearly 7 million Jews living in Israel at the present time, and that means 1.6 million would survive. They're going to need some place to go. These 144,000 will be following Jesus Christ, and more than likely, these 144,000 will be directing Jewish people to places of safety. The seventh observation is these 144,000 are the first fruits. Verse 4 says, These, again, masculine pronoun, referring to the 144,000, masculine plural pronoun, these have been purchased from among men as first fruits to God and to the Lamb. We believe they're the first fruits of meeting Jesus Christ on Mount Zion for the kingdom reign. They're the first group to get the privilege of doing this. Now, Christ will come back in chapter 19 when he comes back for good. But these are the first fruits of the nation Israel who have the privilege of this point in the tribulation period of actually meeting with Jesus Christ on Mount Zion. And they're the first to actually meet him in this kingdom context. Now, the eighth observation is these 144,000 are truthful. Verse 5 says this, and no lie was found in their mouth. I want to talk about that for us and make applications for us. We as God's people, of all people in the world, better be truthful people. If we're not after truth, who's going to be? In this world we're in. If we're not pursuing an understanding of truth, and if we're not telling the truth, we're lying to each other, who's the world going to look to and say, you know, those people are real? What's interesting is these 144,000 are known to be true and no lie was found in their mouth. In other words, these were God's true witnesses. They tell the truth. They're not like the lying religious phony leaders that will be flourishing in the tribulation. These men are truth setters. They were interested in knowing truth. They always told the truth. They'll communicate the truth of God. And those who follow the Lord, if they're saying they're following the Lord and they're in a close fellowship with Jesus Christ, you should tell the truth for goodness sakes. The Lord's truth. You should be after the word of God and after applying it to your life. And during the tribulation when Satan's on this earth, People who tell the truth will be far and few between. Truth setters and truth seekers will be very rare. The majority of people on this earth will be liars. The Antichrist will be the great deceiver. He'll be the greatest deceiver that's ever lived. And as a result of that, someone that would actually tell the truth is very, very rare. And that's the way we need to be as the people of God. I don't want to hear about myself or any of you saying, you know, they just don't tell the truth. They're a bunch of scum liars. What a horrible testimony for people in the church age to get that. You can't count on them. You can't depend on them. They say one thing. They do another thing. They're not people of their word. We need to be truthful people. This is the kind of thing that pleases the Lord. And then they're blameless. We see at the end of verse 5, they're blameless. 
The word is not sinless. What this means is these people were real. These people were people that you could look at, these 144,000. They were without fault. They were without blemish. You couldn't point the finger and say, man, those people are a bunch of frauds. These people were really dedicated to the Lord Jesus Christ and dedicated to the word of God. And they are dedicated to the Lord Jesus Christ at a time when literally people are dying because of their dedication to the word of God. These 144,000 will be men of integrity. They're going to live their lives free from immorality and deceit. They're not going to be covering or hiding anything. They will be blameless during the tribulation, and they're the ones that are going to have close fellowship with Jesus Christ. Let me wrap this up by just making a couple of applications. In the worst possible times of existence, God will always protect, lead, guide, use, and care for faithful people. In the worst possible times of existence in the world, God will protect, lead, guide, use, care for faithful people. I don't care what the threat, I don't care what the intimidation, I don't care what the sins are out there. Faithful people of God who are close to the Lord, truthful people, blameless people, people who are keeping themselves pure will discover God will take care of them. God will take care of them. Secondly, God's people need to be doing four things in life. I mean, these are basic stuff. I mean, really, if you want basic spirituality, here it is. Number one, we need to be people who testify that redemption is found in Jesus Christ, only found in him. And I hope Romans is cementing that in our minds and hearts. Nobody can be saved by their works. Nobody can be saved by their religion. Redemption is found totally, only, and completely in Jesus Christ. He's the one who died on that cross. He's the one who shed his blood, and he's the only one who can save us from our sins. We need to be testifying of that. Number two, we need to live a life that pursues purity. Keep that in your mind. We need to live a life that pursues purity. This world is getting more and more evil. A person pursuing biblical purity, God is going to use to bear fruit, and they're going to stand out. Thirdly, we need to be people that always tell the truth. Don't bend it. Don't color it. Set it forth straight. Tell the truth. Be truth setters. We want to be known for that. I want this church known for that. The people of that church, man, I'm telling you, they're after the truth of God, and they do their best to live it. And finally, we need to live blameless lives. We need to live a life that nobody can point their finger and say, there, you should see what they're really involved in. Yeah, when they leave church, you should see the stuff they're really doing. I mean, we don't want that. We want lives where you say, yeah, they may not be perfect people, but I'll tell you what, those people are dedicated to the word of God and they do their best to obey it. That's what we want to be. That's what these 144,000 will be. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you that you have a plan that is just specifically laid out. It's just interesting how you've set aside your people in different dispensations to accomplish your purposes. And we realize, Lord, we're here now and we have various 
spheres that we live life and we do different things and we're around different people and yet you have us there for a specific reason to reach people in our world and I pray we would. I pray we'd reach them. I pray we would defend the truth. I pray we'd be truth setters. I pray we'd pursue purity, Lord. I pray that no one would be able to bring a valid charge of anything evil against us. Well, thank you for that work, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.